Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This is something the Academy has struggled with for 50 years, really. The fact that it runs on for four hours. The goal is for it to last three hours and not four hours. People binge watch 12 hours of a show in a row. You know, I don't think three hours is too much to ask to watch the Oscars. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is Richard Roper, the incredibly talented and personable movie critic of the Chicago Sun-Times. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. This is a real treat for me. I am a fan of the movies. I am a fan of yours. Well, Fran, I have been your fan forever. And let me tell you, it is so nice to be on the uh, receiving end of I'm Fran Spielman and not be an alderman or someone like that. (laughs) You're saying, oh, God, what's she going to ask me? Because we're on the same team. So that's great. I'm looking forward to it. Older person. Uh, You know, you see, this is what I'm talking about. Already I'm in timeout. (laughs) Rich, it's Oscar week. It's is this like the biggest week of the year for you? I mean, what are your thoughts as you count down the days until the Super Bowl of the movie industry? That's the perfect way of putting it. You know, this is, uh, as much as I love college basketball, Fran, this is my professional and personal March Madness, if you will. Uh, so, you know, for weeks and months, it's it's always exciting to me because, of course, all year long, as you know, I've been writing for the Sun-Times forever, uh, you know, mentored by the late, great Roger Ebert. And I'm triumphing and trying to get people to see the really good movies in addition to the blockbusters all year long. But these are the few months leading up to the Oscars that everybody wants to know more about the power of the dog and, you know, smaller films like that and licorice pizza. So the most exciting part for me isn't just, oh, who's going to win the Academy Award, but it's like, hey, let's take a look at all the great work that's available out there. Right. And you educate people about that. Over the years, the Oscars have really been a showcase for the movies, a way for Tinseltown to build enthusiasm for the movies, to celebrate the movies that were the best of the year, to encourage people who hadn't seen them to return to the movies, to build audience. But when it comes to the ratings, the Oscar broadcast, I believe, hit its peak after the the year of the Titanic movie, uh, which everyone saw. And now I think last year was like an all time low, right? That's correct. And I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that, Fran, because everybody talks about 97 and Titanic, which, you know, one of the most popular films of all time, also one of slew of Oscars. But I think even more important when you look at the era in which that occurred, Fran, 1997, most of us didn't even have, we might have had basic cable then. We were watching CNN and things like that. But HBO and Showtime were really just coming into the, their own. Sopranos came out a few years after that. We didn't have all the streaming platforms. So your television choices, if you go and look back, all the ratings for all the programs were way bigger. You know, the sitcom, Seinfeld got numbers in the 80s and the 90s that no sitcom will ever get again. 
to last year's ratings, I, I, you know, you're absolutely right. They hit an all time low, but they also were under special circumstances because we were in the midst of the pandemic and they didn't have a red, a real red carpet. Uh, the ceremony was held in the downtown Los Angeles train station, which is kind of a famous movie location. And then they had a lot of nominees in London. So it was by design never going to be a huge show. It's still, you know, I think it got about 10 million viewers, which would make it a hit show. But even two years before that, it had 22 million viewers. This is the first time we're going back to pretty much the same Oscar ceremony. There's going to be some spatial distancing at the Dolby Theater, but that's the old theater. The code used to be the Kodak at Hollywood and Highland that people remember for the last 25 years. They're going to have a red carpet. We got Regina Hall, Amy Schumer, and Wanda Sykes hosting, which is fantastic. So I would expect, friend, those numbers to go closer back up to 20 million this year. Even though these are movies that so many people have not seen? Well, that's another interesting thing. You know, I'm, I'm like you, you know, I know that you and I came up at a different time, but I, I embrace the changes. You have to, right? I mean, you know, you could, you, when we first started filing our stories, we were dictating them or using pneumatic tubes or, you know, uh, rudimentary uh, computers. I love the fact that there are so many other ways to see movies. Of course, I want people to see movies on the big screen. That's the way they should see them. But here's the difference, friend. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, if a movie or a performance was up for an Academy Award, the only way you could see it would be to go to the theater to see it. Now, almost every single one of these Best Picture nominees, the big ones and the small ones, you can get on one streaming or on-demand platform after another. In most cases, you're going to have to pay, but you don't even have to leave your home. So I would argue that more people have probably seen a film like Coda or Nightmare Alley or The Power of the Dog and have seen performances like Troy Kotzer encoded that would never have seen it because they could watch it at home in the last couple of weeks are saying, Hey, this, this Coda film is up for a bunch of Oscars. Let's, let's dole out the $15 or whatever it is, watch it from the comfort of our home. So in a way there's much more opportunity for people to see these nominations and nominated films. That is true. Why, uh, what do you think the telecast itself is going to do to boost the ratings? Yeah. You know, and again, <laughs> This is something the Academy has struggled with for 50 years, really. The fact that it runs on for four hours and that affects the ratings because they hold a lot of the big awards until the end. But on the East Coast, it's midnight by then and people have tuned out. So they got a lot of controversy for this uh, this year, Fran. They said, we're going to take out of the 23 categories that are normally on the TV program. We're going to do eight of them before ABC basically flips the switch and turns the light. We're going to do some of I hate to say lesser categories, but less glamorous categories, shall we say, whether it's production design, animated short, makeup and costume, although a lot of people love that category. They're going to still do those categories, but they're going to do them first, pre-tape them, and then sprinkle recordings of that into the live telecast. The goal is for it to last three hours and not four hours. They believe that by making it a three-hour telecast, because as we all know, we live in an age of uh, you know, all these distractions we've talked about and to get anybody to sit down for four hours for anything is a, is a tough thing. So the hope is that they're going to, with these changes, you, you know, if it starts at seven, it'll be over 10 central time, which is, you know, listen, people binge watch 12 hours of a show in a row. You know, I don't think three hours is too much to ask to watch the Oscars. But, you know, I have to tell you that I watched the eyes of Tammy Faye last night. And if I would like to see the makeup category awarded on the show because that was fantastic. I mean, the makeup is so much a part of Hollywood, isn't it? 
It really is. That's you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, let's go back for a second and even talk about, you know, non-movies when it comes to the streaming shows and costumes. I mean, a show like Bridgerton, half of the fun of watching Bridgerton is the costumes. And you mentioned the makeup. And for people who don't remember, I've been telling younger people the last couple of weeks about uh, Jim Baker and Tammy Faye Baker and the PTL. And I mean, it was such it was the most blatant long con in television history that these two pulled up. And uh, Jessica Chastain, who's one of my favorite actresses, in fact, I just talked to her last week and I told her, I cannot look at you the same way again after seeing you <laughs> because the makeup transformed her. And, and as she has actually said, if she's on the red carpet and they're pre-taping the makeup segment, she's going to leave the red carpet and go in there and support her makeup team for that, for that movie. She knows how important that makeup was. Absolutely. Before we get into the categories, what do you think of the pairing of Wanda Sykes and Regina Hall and Amy Schumer? How will that help the ratings? I think it's great. I'm, you know, it's it. These are three very, very talented, uh, funny individuals who have hosted some other things, but have never done the Oscars before. So it's something fresh. As much as I love some of the hosts we've had in the past, you know, Billy, uh, Billy Crystal, Jimmy Kimmel, uh, I think something fresh is great. Out of the three, Amy Schumer's the one who's most likely to say something that's going to have the audience half groaning, half laughing, half cringing, because that's Amy's comedy. You know, uh, you know, she famously tried to get Zelensky to do a, do a live appearance uh, via satellite. You better believe there's going to be some political activism. But I think, they're, you know, they're also show business veterans, Fran, and they realize that people are mostly tuning tuning in to escape and just have fun. So I hope they keep the comedy aimed more at Hollywood than the rest of the world. Yeah, I don't like the political speeches myself. I watch these people for what for their talent in the movies. You know, keep your political opinions to yourself. We do want to escape that during the Oscar broadcast, or at least most people do, I think. Let's talk about your picks now. For Best Actor, you have chosen Will Smith for King Richard. I love this movie. I love the performance. Normally, biopics like this one about Richard Williams, father of tennis greats Serena and Venus Williams, are kind of disappointing. They tend to bite off too much. They don't deliver. This, to me, was dramatically different. It was a terrific look at this loving and driven father who took his daughters from the ghettos of Compton to the peak of the tennis world, where they still are today. What did you think? I, I couldn't agree more, Fran. And I think you mentioned the bite off more than they can chew thing. I think you, the best biopics take a specific period in the life of a character. And, you know, even if it's something like go back to, you know, 13 days, which was about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, and, and that particular moment in the fairly nascent presidency of John F. Kennedy, as opposed to when they try to do these, you know, born in this log cabin and Abe Lincoln did this. And, you know, Spielberg did that with Lincoln. It was about, you know, a very specific time. And with King Richard, the girls are just becoming superstars when the movie ends. It's all about that. The most, the more unlikely than any other championships, the fact that he got them into the position of even being able to compete because of the odds they faced. What I also liked about it, Fran, is, you know, Will Smith is someone... He's one of those actors who I think it's underrated because he's such a well-known personality. You feel like you know Will Smith, no matter, you know, if you've never met him, you still feel like you know him. You don't feel like you know Benedict Cumberbatch. You feel like you're watching a great actor. Uh, and yet he disappeared into this character and he, he's not a saint. He's King Richard. There's a little irony a little bit to that because he has to comport himself as a king. And, and uh, we can talk in the supporting uh, category about how important uh, 
Ingenue Ellis is to the role as as his wife because it's pointed out to him late in the movie he didn't do all this by himself. So I agree with you. It was just really well done. But you you know even though we all know Will Smith, five minutes into that movie. We're buying him as Richard Williams. I loved Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness. I was not at all yes. surprised by this terrific performance. Were you? That's a great point. That's a, and that's a Chicago story, by the way. If people haven't seen that, uh, again, a true story uh, about a guy who is literally homeless and trying to make his way. Uh, and that's his son, his young son, playing his son in uh, The Pursuit of Happiness. This movie was done by Amazon Prime, I believe. Did that surprise you in any way? Or is this the wave of not only the future, but the present? It would have surprised me five years ago, Fran, because even that recently, uh, Amazon and even Netflix and Hulu, they were mostly streaming content that was being, it already existed or was being produced by outside forces. They weren't really putting up a lot of money for the stuff. In other words, they weren't a real studio. Now they are a studio. You know, they are they are now just the same. I, you know, I know it's hard for some people to wrap their minds around this, but you know, Netflix is a studio the same as Warner Brothers, Universal, and Disney are studios. Uh, there are a lot of films actually, you know, especially with Amazon Prime and certainly with Netflix. They seem to have bottomless pockets. They're not concerned too much about, I mean, they want to make a profit, but they're really in it for the long run. So, you know, you look back at a movie from a couple of years ago called The Irishman, Martin Scorsese's film. He's got a lifelong deal with his, his home studio. And they said, we're not, you know, you're, you're one of the great filmmakers of all time. We're not putting out 150 to $200 million for another mob movie by Martin Scorsese. The commercial viability is in question. Netflix says, what do you need? You need 200 million. Here you go. So, that's how that movie got made. For best actress, you chose, as we talked about earlier, Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Baker. Why did you choose this performance? Was it basically a runaway winner to you? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that, friend. It's it, you know, a lot of times I do liken these races to political races where it becomes a candidate's time, you know. And so, you know, Olivia Coleman, who's great in The Lost Daughter, won just I think three years ago. Uh, Penelope Cruz has won before. Nicole Kidman has run before. And Kristen Stewart, who I thought was terrific at Spencer, is still relatively young and relatively new to being in the kind of circle with these other acclaimed actresses. And then you look at Jessica Chastain, who's been nominated a few times before, but has never won, but has really been doing terrific work for more like 15 years. So it's a combination of the performance and the timing. For Best Supporting Actor, your choice is Cody Smith-McPhee for The Power of the Dog. I got to tell you, Rich, I watched that movie. I loved it. I loved the performances. I thought it was beautifully done. The acting was superior. But I do have to admit, and I'm, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to admit this, I had to Google the ending and mm -hmm. what was the meaning of it. I mean, am I just you know, a little ignorant or is that a good movie when you have to figure out how did it happen and what happened and what did they mean by it happening? I know, I know what you mean. I sat in the screening room after it ended and kind of processed it. You know, not, it's not something where, you know, at the end of the usual suspects, you know who Kaiser Soze is, right? There's no right. doubt about that twist. In this case, it was more subtle. Um, and, you know, I'll tell you this. I, I didn't love the film. I admired it. It's not a film, I, I talk about films that have repeatability, friend, that you'd want to watch again. King Richard is a film you'd watch again in a year or two or down the road. The Power of the Dog, it doesn't mean it's not as good. It's just, you know, 
I'm going to be more likely to go back and watch Goodfellas than I am Schindler's List just because of the, the emotions it takes you through when you watch certain films. So I would agree with you that is definitely it's elusive a little bit. Uh, the material, I think, is, is, is more controversial and trickier. The reason I chose him here, and you know, I should make it clear, too, these are my predictions, although a lot of times they're my preferences, is a lot of the things we've talked about before. And, and Cody Smith-McPhee, sometimes in the supporting categories, is when they'll take a young up-and-comer and recognize them. So, you know, uh, J.K. Simmons has won before. Kieran Hines, great, great actor in Belfast. I think Troy Kotzer has a chance. Jesse Plemons will win someday, but I think, you know, and then there's also people that say, well, there's two nominations from the power of the dog because that's split the vote sometimes. So that's, that's one, if you're filling out your pool, I think you could make the case for at least three of the candidates. You chose the power of the dog as best picture, but is it really best picture when people like me who, who, who are experienced moviegoers, not of course like you, but, and are not, I'm not dumb about movies. I know, you know, I, I can read the endings of most movies, but I literally had to Google it. Is that successful? Is it a best picture if you leave the audience in wonder like that? I think that's a legitimate concern, friend. You know, we talk about, as you know very well, like you'll talk in Chicago, you know, has the voting block changed? And I think, as people know, the Academy has changed quite a bit over the last five years, admirably so. Uh, they've widened, you know, they've widened the tent, if you will. There's, uh, you know, more diverse membership, younger, more female. Still, if you're in the Academy, you're in for life, which means it still skews older white male and a little traditional. And, you know, I could see that being a problem for the power of the dog. Whereas, you know, Belfast for all of Kenneth Branagh's, you know, beautiful filmmaking that's on display here. The fact that it's mostly in black and white and he does a lot of stylistic things. It's a very traditional movie. You know, it tells a story from a certain period of time. It's basically, you know, his story as a young man growing up in Northern Ireland, it's more accessible. Uh, so is uh, King Richard. Uh, you know, another film that even though it's a much more sweeping and epic film than The Power of the Dog that is elusive is Dune, because Dune is really just part one of Dune, Fran. And unless you're Godfather, you're not going to win for part one of a movie usually. So I, I think that could work against The Power of the Dog. The fact there's 10 candidates also means, you know, you don't need to be the overwhelming uh, pick of the votership to win Best Picture. I adored Belfast. What a terrifically poignant and wonderful film. Beautifully filmed, uplifting, real values. Why not that one for best picture? That's my second choice. First of all, it's my pick for the best movie of the year. So I agree with you. Uh, yeah. I think it can win. Uh, and as I mentioned, this is a story that is set in a very specific time period, about a half century ago. Uh, Kenneth Branagh actually grew up in Northern Ireland. He moved with his family to Great Britain when he was about nine and became, you know, the incredible artist that he is today. Um, it does have the type of resonance, I feel, that a best picture uh, winner has. I think 25 years ago, 25 years from now, when people look back on this year, Belfast will be a, a film better remembered than The Power of the Dog, uh, regardless who wins the Oscar. And the other thing about Belfast, Fran, that I think would resonate with voters is, you know, it does have a cinematic quality to it, not just in the fact that it's in this gorgeous, glorious black and white for the most part, but there's a scene where the family goes to the movies and sees Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and is yeah. you know lost in that movie. for. It's very much kind of similar to now in that 
you know, you can escape from everything in the world for two hours and you see the joy on their faces. Uh, there's a tribute to High Noon. So you know, Hollywood also loves movies that reference other movies. Right. For Best Supporting Actress, you did choose Dame Judi Dench for her magnificent performance in Belfast. Is there a role of an older woman that she hasn't gotten? No, I think they have to go, by law, they have to go to her first. You know, it seems like there's three of her. Uh, and she's amazing. You know what I loved about that, too, is that Judy Dench and Karen Hines, the story of Belfast is essentially told through the viewpoint of the nine-year-old boy. You know, you see him looking down the stairwell as his mother and father are getting into an argument or as his grandparents are, are interacting. But there's a real love story between the grandparents that you don't see a lot in major motion pictures. You know, an actual romance, not just two funny eccentric, you know, bickering characters. There's real love there. They have a, a dance that'll bring a tear to your eye. So, uh, and she's a favorite of the Academy. This is a great category though, Fran, because Ariana DeBose for West Side Story is probably the favorite. That'd be a way of honoring Spielberg's remake. Uh, Jesse Buckley for The Lost Daughter is interesting because she's playing the younger version of Olivia Coleman's character in The Lost Daughter. So two actors playing the same part, same role at different times. Uh, and and we did touch on a little bit on Ingenue uh, Ellis, uh, who is amazing in King Richard as as the mother of these girls, who's a nurse who sacrifices at least as much as King Richard does uh, for those girls. And I'll mention this too, Fran, because we have so many, obviously, Chicago-centric folks listening to your podcast. There's a series coming out in a couple of weeks called 61st Street on uh, AMC, and it's set on the South side of Chicago. And she has an amazing role in that as well. So it's a great year for Ingenue Ellis. Let's talk about Steven Spielberg's updated version of West Side Story. How did you like it? What, uh, what new twist did he take on this classic? Yeah, you know, I didn't think I really needed it because I mean, the first one is what it, first of all, you know, people know it's an adaptation of a great Broadway play, which is Shakespeare. And it, you know, it, it's, it doesn't really feel dated because it was already based on centuries old material. Uh, I like the changes he, I was, well, first of all, we were reminded that he's nearly 80 and he's still one of the most uh, innovative is he filmmakers really? out there. He really yeah, is? He is. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And he, wow. you know, I mean, the sets were incredible. The camera work was amazing. I thought the cast was great. You know, we had Rita Moreno, uh, you know, coming back all these 60 years later, which was really cool. But most of the cast, we don't know. We didn't know that well. Some we did, but uh, most we didn't. So I thought that made it fresh. Uh, you know, the songs, there were some moving around in the order and everything, but they didn't, you know, the other thing I love is they didn't go, okay, let's just make some sort of crazy new modern version of these songs. Let's make them, let's turn them into hip hop. Let's give them a, you know, mashup. The songs are timeless, so let's just honor them. So I, I was actually kind of surprised at how much I loved it. Yeah, it wasn't change for change sake. It honored what was great and didn't seek to change yes. it. Yeah. Denzel Washington scored his record 10th Oscar nomination for Macbeth. What an outstanding career has he had. Unbelievable. How did you feel about this performance and with Francis McDormand in Macbeth? Yeah, you know, kind of the same thing. Did we need another Macbeth? We've had hundreds of them probably, right? Uh, and then, you know, we see this new stark black and white take. And I think for Denzel Washington, as you mentioned, he's one of the most acclaimed actors of all time. If he won, he'd be one of the few to win three uh, acting Oscars. My guess is he wanted to do this to show people he could do Shakespeare because we've seen him do everything else. And then he does Shakespeare. He does Macbeth. 
And you expect it to be this over the top play to the rafters, uh, you know, theatrical performance. And it's really not. It's a combination of honoring, as we just mentioned, honoring the source material, but also making it seem fresh. And that's what I always say to people about Shakespeare. It's like, you don't have to understand every single twist of every single phrase. It's pretty obvious what's going on. You know? yeah, and, right. And his, play, his plays have more sex and violence than anything that's NC-17 half the time. Right. Jane Campion is the first woman ever to receive two nominations, two nominations for Best Director, this time for Power of the Dog and West Side Story alongside Spielberg. Will she win it? Yes. And, you know, this kind of comes around to the same thing. She was nominated for the piano the same year that Spielberg was nominated for Schindler's List. And that's one of those cases where, you know, who's going to win and should have won. And she would be the first one to tell you that uh, this could be one of those relatively rare cases, friend, where the director and the best picture don't go hand in hand, where Power of the Dog wins for directing, Belfast wins for best picture. You know, it's just interesting with with uh, Belfast, Kenneth Branagh has won in almost every category you could win in, you know, writing and acting and producing and directing. Uh, so the feeling might be, let's give him the best picture, but he doesn't need a best director award, but let's honor Jane Campion. So I wouldn't be surprised to see that that she wins for best director, but the movie doesn't win, even though I'm predicting it, it's, it's close. Yeah. That spreading it around attitude shows that it's not just about the performance. It's not just about today and now, and this year, it's about the history and the politics. It is. And, you know, maybe it shouldn't, but I have to admit, I don't, I don't vote for the Academy Awards, but I vote a lot of other awards. And I have had that moment where I've thought, well, this actor is 84. They're not going to get another showcase role again. I'm giving them my vote. Even though I might think that this performance by this 32-year-old is better, that actor is going to have a moment, the spotlight again. Or, you know, let, let, we can go back, Fran, you know, you look at um, Al Pacino winning for Scent of a Woman. I don't think you could find a movie fan no. in the world who would tell you that that's his best performance. Not no, unless you... Might, not at you know, all. I think he was over the top in that one. I think he overacted. It was Hollywood. It was Hollywood pap. It's it, it's it's designed to, you know, listen, it's manipulative. It's entertaining enough. But you compare that to, you know, everything from Panic and Needle Park to Serpico to Dog of the Afternoon to obviously The Godfather. It's El Pacino's 47th best performance. Yeah, know? absolutely. Absolutely. Kenneth Branagh making history for seven Oscar nominations in seven different categories. Wow. That's amazing. You know, we got to know him probably first in America as, you know, an actor, you know, and, and seeing him in different roles. And a lot of actors make the transition, you know, into writing and then directing. He kind of ran off someone who came up as an artist, you know, was going to write and direct. And I, I my guess is and a lot of time when you talk to veteran actors who become filmmakers, whether it's uh, somebody like George Clooney or and really Clint Eastwood kind of set the tone for this. Believe it or not, his first film as a director was Play Misty for Me. It's the 50th anniversary of Play Misty for Me. And, and usually they become more interested in the art of directing than just doing another acting role as they get older because they've done everything in front of the screen. And they're like, yeah, when you're acting, it's great. You spend a lot of downtime. You're in the trailer. When you're directing, you're involved with every aspect of making the movie. That was the original Fatal Attraction movie play, Mr. It was. I remember that. That was really something. It was scary as hell. Troy Kotzer. Yeah, because both of us have done radio. We know what it's... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. You open your mouth in radio and you don't know who's on the other end of the line. I know. Yeah. 
Troy Kotzer is the first male deaf nominee for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in CODA nearly 40 years after his co-star Marley Matlin became the first female actress to win Best Actress for Children of a Lesser God. Wow, that took a long time, didn't it? Well, it did. And, you know, we've had a lot of controversy over the last few years about whether or not if you're not disabled, you should play somebody who's physically disabled. If you're not hearing impaired, can you play somebody who's hearing impaired? I tend to believe that, you know, you have to err on the side of actors should be able to act. Uh, But I completely endorse and embrace the idea that, you know, if you're going to do a movie about uh, a nuclear family where everybody's deaf or hearing impaired, that look at the talented actors who are out there. So, you know, it's a sentimental film. I liked it a lot. I was kind of surprised to see it did as well as it did. And it's picking up all this awards uh, esteem. Uh, what I like about the character he plays is, you know, there's a tendency sometimes if someone has a disability that they become a little too noble and it, beca- it can almost get to be condescending. And there's none of that in, in any of the four performances. This is a real family dealing with the same problems a lot of other real families have. And then the fact that every time they step outside of the comfort zone of their own home where they can communicate with one another, that they have a new set of challenges. Yeah. Coda walked away with a lot of awards leading up to the Oscars. Why didn't you choose that movie as best picture? You know, it's honestly, it took me by surprise. I didn't expect it to, to win awards. I thought this was a case of, isn't this great? It's getting nominations, you know, in some big categories. So it is picking up a lot of momentum, Fran. You know, these days there's even Vegas bookmakers and certainly overseas that handicap the Oscars. And a lot of them now have it as the co-favorite with the power of the dog. And to what you were saying about the power of the dog, you know, I could see a lot of voters if it comes down to those two. Coda would be the sentimental favorite. Uh, Power of the Dog is a great film. No one's going to attach the word sentimental to it other than to the fact that it's Jane Campion directing and there's such great support for her personally and professionally. You chose Licorice Pizza as one of your top three films of last year. Let's talk about that movie. What did you like about it? Yeah, I liked it because it was kind of like Anderson, the director. It's, you know, it's this kind of period piece tale. And it reminded me in some ways of a, a less violent version of Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Fran, and that it, it interweaves completely fictional characters with some real life characters and events in a way that's not, you know, they're not revising all of history. It's not like Inglorious Bastards where they changed everything about World War II. But they, they do just a kind of great job of saying, isn't this interesting to think about it from this perspective? And I love that period of time because, you know, I'm I, I, 12 or 13 years old, the, the period piece where that movie came out. So that's just about the time in real life I was starting to really fall in love with movies. So, you know, there's got they got all those great early 70s touchstones like gas shortages and things that are happening in politics. But it's not the main theme of the movie. Uh, and, and Bradley Cooper's hilarious is John Peters, a real life uh, 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 producer. Um, so there's there's things in there that are you know based on reality, but it's highly fictionalized. But I love those stories that kind of you know kind of go in through different characters, very similar to his films like uh, Boogie Nights and Magnolia. Yeah, you chose this uh, licorice pizza for original screenplay. Before we let you go, what would Roger Ebert think of the of what has become of the movie industry and the changing way that audiences view movies? You know, I, I I'm asked that a lot about what would you think. A lot of times people say, "What do you think he would think of a particular movie?" And I, I you know, I don't dare say I know, but I I did know him very well, and I I, I think at the beginning. 
uh, he probably would have hated the fact that you could see something on HBO Max the same night you could see it in the theater. Roger was all about going to the theater. He had very specific rules about what seat to sit in. Uh, you know, the projectionists and all of that loved going to Sundance and Cannes and Toronto. But as you probably know, Frank, he also was somebody who embraced technology. He was one of the first people I know to just start raving about Steve Jobs and Apple. I'm talking about 25 years ago and had laptops and he'd be showing me the latest gadgets and loved his iPod. So I think he would have eventually embraced the technology because he was another one who really kind of rolled with the times, you know. Uh, so I, th I think he would have, he also, he was someone that I could never get to watch television because he was watching every single movie. So I would say, Roger, you got to watch Breaking Bad. It's cinematically good. Ah, it's TV. And, you know, I think he would have changed his attitude about that too. If nothing more than for the fact that so many, you know, Academy Award winning directors like David Fincher and actors like Glenn Close and Jessica Lynch and Holly Hunter are now doing television because that's where some of the best writing is. Yeah, that is very true. Will there ever be a day when we don't have a brick and mortar theaters? No, I don't think so. Uh, for one thing, Marvel, you know, will keep those up, even though, you know, myself included, you can have a lot of criticisms for these superhero movies, which sometimes run into one another in terms of the content. But but they're so great on the big screen, Fran. And horror films, which are also popular. And, you know, I always tell when I give speeches and there's parents of, you know, I always ask, how many of you have teenagers or adolescents? And they raise their hand. And I say, you know, your kids are going to the movies for two reasons. They're going to the movies because they love the movies. They're going to the movies to get away from you. Right. It, is the, right. it is the first kind of sanctioned activity kids from about the, you know, if you remember when you're 11, 12, 13, you can't or shouldn't be out after curfew. You shouldn't be out unsupervised. The one thing your parents might agree to do is drop you off at the shopping center, at the mall, if you will, or at the Cineplex, where you meet friends, you go inside, you see a movie, you come outside three hours later, they pick you up. They know where you're at, they know you're safe. But for a kid, it's your first kind of taste of independence. You know, we're going to go see A Quiet Place Part Two, or we're going to go see, uh, you know, Avengers, Age of Ultron, and mom isn't going to come with me. You know, and that's a cool yeah. thing for kids. Yeah. Rich, thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful Oscars uh, performance. And I look forward to reading all that you have to say about the winners and the losers. You're the best. Take care. Thanks, friend. And we will see you all next week.